The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We're going to continue in our series uh, called Life Lessons tonight. And so uh, we've talked about Eli. And uh, then we talked about Samuel. Now we find ourselves talking about the life of Saul. And so uh, if you want to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, that's where we'll get started tonight. Uh, and as you're turning there, um, I'll give you just the next chapter back to kind of set the stage of where we're headed because we're going to pick up in Saul's life uh, right around the time he starts to be chosen as Israel's first king. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is one of the most tragic chapters in the Scriptures. Uh, This is where we see Israel demand a human king so that they can be like other nations, in their words, and they outright reject God, who himself wanted to be their king, and continually pleads with them to let that happen, because it'll be better for them. This whole idea has a bit of a heartbreaking and familiar ring to it, doesn't it? God wants to be in direct relationship with us, And we decide we would want something else instead. Something we all struggle with. Something the nation of Israel is struggling with at this point. And we're going to see a little bit of that saga unfold as we look at Saul's life. Uh, Chapter 9 begins to unfold for us the process that God uses for selecting the first king of Israel. And so we're going to start in uh, 1 Samuel 9, chapter 1. Read the first 10 verses. And... um, do quite a bit of, of scripture reading tonight, but I know you guys are Bible folks, so you'll be happy about that. Amen? All right. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, the son of Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Uh, that doesn't mean he had a super long neck, okay? I checked into it. I know that's what it sounds like. Uh, it just means he was ahead above everyone else as far as height. So he uh, wasn't like a giraffe hybrid. Um, okay, so now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find him. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of uh, the Benjamites, but they could not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father uh, will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer. For he was called a prophet, now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So we see here, uh, the Bible introduces Saul in a 
absolutely heart-pounding and riveting situation. He's searching for lost donkeys, right? The Bible's never to be outdone in drama. So we're on a lost donkey search here. Um, to me, <laughs> this situation seems like a 9 or a 10 on the annoying slash inconvenience meter, right? If that was such a thing that could measure it. Uh, this seems pretty inconvenient. They're passing through a bunch of different types of lands, searching for these uh, daggone donkeys that have, that have flown the coop. And so I'm assuming that he's fairly frustrated by this. Um, I'm, I try to think of a modern equivalent. What's a 9 or a 10 on the annoyance slash inconvenience scale? And, and I guess I'm speaking from personal experience. This is probably subjective. But I would say for, for Saul and his servant, this was probably akin to going to the BMV. Two of you have been to the BMB. The rest of you, when you go, you'll know what I'm talking about, okay? Because every time you go there, you don't have one thing that you need, and so you wait in that ultra-long line, you get up to the front, and it's almost like those precious ladies back there relish the fact that you don't have that one piece of paper you needed. So I really like going there. Or uh, I was trying to think of others. When you have a fly that's buzzing around inside your car, is that not the worst? And you can't get it, and you're smacking at it, swerving all over the road. It's, it's terrible. It doesn't matter. You roll your windows down. It's, it, it's like it hides down in the seats until the windows go up and then it's back out cheerily just circling your face as you're trying to drive. Uh, or when your hard drive crashes. Anyone ever a hard drive crash? That's a 9 or a 10 on the inconvenience annoyance scale for sure. So these guys are probably, you know, uh, not having the greatest day they've had. But uh, they do what we often do, right? They try everything they can on their own to solve the problem. Then they have this revelatory thought. Hey, maybe God can help. Anybody else ever done a whole bunch of stuff on your own and then got to the point where you thought, oh, hey, maybe God can help. I've done that before, and uh, I wish I'd do it less. All right? Uh, so that's where we find ourselves, and, and then, uh, so they're going to come, and they're going to talk to Samuel. Okay, so we're going to pick up in verse 15, and uh, keep on going with the story here, find out what happens to our friends. Uh, We'll read to verse 21. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. That's kind of scary. How many of you are running right then? He's going to tell him everything he's thinking. You know what? That sounds good. I'll I'll, I'll see you up there. Right? He's gone. They didn't, you know, they couldn't peel out tires because they didn't have cars, but that sound is what I'm hearing in my head. Okay. Um, as, for, uh, as for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And uh, for, whom is, <clears throat> for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you, uh, for all your father's household? Saul replied, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? And so the first thing that's becoming apparent, I think, in verses 15 through 21 is that there's more to this trip than just a donkey rodeo, 
something's going on here, okay? I don't think Saul has all the pieces put together yet, but it's Samuel's a very prominent prophet. Everybody respects him, and, and as soon as Saul shows up, he says, hey, man, you're going you're gonna to come meet with me today. This is not common. There's something going on, clearly. Uh, we see at the end here, uh, verse 21, we see what seems to be some degree of humility from Saul before he understands that he's been chosen to become king. Now, it's hard to sort out, and different folks would argue about whether this is kind of false humility because we know that Kish was a mighty man of valor. We know that his family was probably well known in his tribe. We also know, uh, you know Saul being, as the Bible says, the most handsome guy around uh, and also taller than everyone else. Um, he, he, it, this may have been some, some degree of false humility, and the evidence for that would be how things go later. Uh, it would not seem that Saul had a true sense of humility. But also, it could be that at this point, he was overwhelmed by the fact that Samuel would talk to him so graciously, uh, and then the problems arise later uh, when he becomes king and starts to feel pretty awesome about himself. So, um, all right, let's keep going. We're going to uh, go from verse 25 through verse 1 of chapter 10, okay? When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof, and they arose early. And at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went down into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on. But you remain, standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? So are you guys catching what just happened here? This is a pretty big deal. Okay, so from Saul's perspective, the only reason he is in the city with Samuel was because he was out on a donkey hunt, right? That's as far as he knew what was going on. Instead of apprehending some donkeys, he ends up anointed as the first king of Israel. This is a big deal and not what was expected, for sure. As people of God, we must be patient and filled with His Spirit because you never know when the traffic jam or the lost keys are a part of God's sovereign plan to save your life or to use you to save someone else's. We have to be patient and full of God's Spirit because just like in Saul's life where he went out for a donkey rodeo and ended up getting anointed king, you have no idea when the slight things that you perceive as just an inconvenience or something that, that slowed you up or something that you may even be upset about is something orchestrated by God Almighty because He's doing something. And so relying on God's sovereignty would help us be frustrated less, full of God's peace more, and in the right place at the right time. God often works <clears throat> through the mundane and annoying details of life. God is working in all things. But that doesn't mean that we should overcorrect and become then superstitious. There are two ways to misinterpret God's guidance through circumstances. God is continually guiding us through circumstances. God is using different events and environments and circumstances to wield His will throughout all of time and history, coming down to the point of His ultimate plan of redemption. And we are a part of that. God is not distant he is involved. The scriptures are clear about that. But there's two ways for us to misinterpret God's guidance through circumstance. One is that, to one, to one side, we can look at it as every single event has some significant meaning from God. 
Or the second, on the other end of the spectrum, is to ignore or dismiss the clear hand of God in circumstances. So the, the first one I'll, I'll talk about, I said, is kind of trying to make every single event have some significant meaning from God. I'll give you some more examples. That might sound like, what are you even talking about? So I think sometimes there's a tendency to end up on the side of the, the, the fence where you end up superstitious, or some people would use the terminology hyper-spiritual, okay? So I'm going to give you an example of that. So last night I watched the Bengals game, okay? Hold your applause. I know some of you are just trying to, trying to contain how happy you are about it. Uh, it was, that was the first football game that I've watched this year. I had no emotional investment whatsoever in the outcome, uh, but a couple friends and I were scrolling through social media laughing at everyone who did towards the end of the game. So if that was you, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you guys are funny, okay? Because it's not that big of a deal, okay? Um, I thought it was especially funny. I don't know if you guys saw this. They had memes uh, made for that female fan that was crying like three minutes after the game. It's unbelievable. There is a meme squad out there just ready. Like they're capturing footage live and cranking that stuff out. So I just... If this gets to the internet and somehow those people hear this, I want to say thank you <laughs> because I appreciate it. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite interesting and funny. Um, and though generally I am troubled by how emotionally invested some folks can get in sports, I saw something that troubled me even more than that. And it was this post from a guy that I have met, and he pastors a church in this city. Um, here's the post. I'm going to read it to you. Here's the post. The commentator just said, some out-of-control moments just cost the Bengals their season. This is the word of the Lord that applies not only to the Bengals, but also to us as well. You live out of control, and it will cost you the due season you've been promised. Hashtag prophetic moments. I'm going to tell you right now. I've met this brother, and I'm, I think I have his phone number. I'm going to try to find his phone number. I'm going to call him, and I'm going to ask him what the Sam Hades he's talking about. <laughs> Are the commentators prophesying? I don't even know. I'm so confused about how to move forward in life if that's what was happening. <laughs> like, what do I do now if I have to watch all the football games to figure out the prophecies coming from the commentators? You know what I'm saying? So here's what I'm saying. Friends, sometimes you can get a bit hyper-spiritual. Sometimes you can see things where they aren't there. Sometimes you can read too much into stuff, okay? Sometimes that happens. Um, sometimes folks get a little hyper-spiritual. I've known folks that, I mean, I've, you'll be standing outside with them and the wind will blow, you know, a dog will bark, and then they'll hear a train whistle in the distance. And, you know, they would tell you they, they felt the spirit move in the wind, and then they felt, you know, they heard the howl of their past sins right after that, but they're going to ride a glory train all the way home to eternity, you know, or something. I don't know. I, I mean, I, was, I and I, and then you got to be led by the Spirit, like, okay, what's the timing on how I deal with this, right? Am I, do I do it now? Do I write a letter later? What, what do we do, right? I don't know. So, and you laugh, but that was, that was a toned-down version of some of the stuff I've heard before, okay? And so you can, you can, you can get out there with this stuff, um, and, and you can get to the point where it's flaky. And then people, what happens when you do that, and you 
act like Bengals commentators are prophesying and, and the dog howling in the distance is a message from God, it starts to really cause a degradation in people's understanding of the integrity of when somebody says, this, this is a word from the Lord. And we better know. If we're going to say, this is a word from the Lord, you better be for dang sure. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Because God's speaking is pretty serious stuff. <laughs> and that's why here we're not going to, listen, the Lord can speak through anybody in here that has put faith in Christ and has the Holy Spirit in them. I believe the gift of prophecy is active. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are active in the body of Christ for the lifting up of Jesus and the furthering of His mission and His gospel. Yes, yes, yes. But what we will not do is let anybody, including me, stand up and say, here's a word from the Lord from me when it's not. That'll be dealt with. Because the integrity of God's word is very important and we love everybody so much that if they get out into that, then we want to help them understand that you're, you're in shaky waters. Okay? You don't want to do that. That was a mixing of two metaphors. What is shaky waters? You guys didn't even catch that. It was such a serious moment, you didn't know what to do with it, right? You're like, I'm going to leave it alone. He said discipline, and I don't know. Okay. All right. Um, But the reality is, okay, so the problem is that sometimes because of that, people will overcorrect. This is always the problem. People will overcorrect to the other side and be way out of balance that way too, right? There's people that, you know, an angel could come in shining clothes and show up and give them a message from God, and they'd say, oh, man, it's probably the shining off a weather balloon and, you know, rogue radio frequencies or something, you know. So there's people that get so freaked out by maybe bad stuff that they've seen or, or people that have said this is God saying something and, and it's clearly not or, or maybe they just have their own internal desire to escape the autonomy or, you know, or, or escape, they want to have autonomy and they, they want to escape the accountability that comes in God being God and Him making the rules and so that no matter what, they saw. what No matter what God did or said, they would find some way to try to explain it away. So that's the other side, and, and we don't want to do that. That's why we have to be led by the Spirit to figure out, is God saying something? Is God doing something? Is there something here that we need to pay attention to? It takes the Spirit of God to know the difference. I'm thankful He's promised to give us His Spirit and help us figure it out, because I'm not smart enough to know all the time. Amen. The bottom line to all of that is that we need to be led by God's Spirit and be people of patience because we humbly acknowledge that God can work in and through all things, even the things that seem mundane to us. And uh, that can change the way we perceive a lot of situations, the way we deal with it, the attitude we have about it. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, We're going to... Keep cruising through the scriptures here, and some things I'm going to jump over and just kind of give you a synopsis. So chapter 10, essentially, is Saul is publicly chosen as king. That's, that's what we see laid out there, okay? Um, look with me at, at the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I want to read verses 25 through 27. Just pull something quickly. This is not something we'll camp on very long at all. I just wanted to show it to you because I thought it was uh, interesting. So 25 through 27, chapter 10 says this, Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? So these are guys that aren't happy about the fact that Saul's being installed as king, running their mouths. 
How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he, that being Saul, kept silent. I think that's interesting. Whenever you are seriously doing something for God, there is going to be detractors and there's going to be haters. And here's what you need to know. You don't need to respond. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to come up with some way to cut them back. And in case you don't think what I just said there, the fact that that's the way Saul uh, went about it, is enough evidence that you don't need to do that. Turn with me quickly uh, to uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Um, If it's not on the same page, it should just be one more over. Chapter 11, verse 12. So here's what happens. Uh, Here beginning in 11, uh, somebody's picking on a smaller town in in Israel. They, They call for help. Saul uh, says the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He pretty much goes Rambo mode and handles business. And then we see in 11.12, so essentially now Saul is a hero. Then Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So remember, we had the haters back. Uh, chapter before, saying, who's this guy? How's he going to save us, right? Well, then he does. He shows up, right? He puts his red bandana on and throws down. And, and, then, and then everyone's like, what, where were those guys talking that mess, right? And they're like, we're going to kill them. <clears throat> where are those guys? Bring them to us. We're going to put them to death. Here's what Saul said. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. So Saul defeats the Ammonites. Everybody else wants to, you know, smash in the mouths that were talking bad about him. Here's what I want to pull from that for you. When God is with you, you don't have to engage in trash talk, and you don't need to take vengeance. You're able to place your trust in the fact that God can handle all that. And there's going to be, if you're going to do something for the Lord, uh, we were promised by King Jesus himself that there will be those that will stand in opposition to us. There will be those that don't like you simply because you walk uprightly before the Lord for various reasons. And we don't have to sort all that out. You don't have to defend yourself. You can keep silent and continue to walk uprightly and righteously before God, and God will handle the rest. And when it comes around and you end up vindicated, and there's probably an opportunity for you to you know, kind of throw it back in their face, or, or there's an opportunity for you to make them look bad uh, at the end of the whole thing, we also learn from this that When you're walking with God and God vindicates you, you don't need to take that vengeance. You just continue to reflect to the fact that He's glorious. And the reason that you're having any measure of success is because of His good mercy to you. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, That brings us to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is pretty much, it's a a speech from Samuel. And he's telling the people again. I'm I'm just going to let you guys know one more time. And it's several times where he gives them this lowdown. Having a king is not God's best for you, but if you insist on taking the road of pain and suffering as a people, then he's going to permit you to do that. We can learn so much about how God deals with people from this experience of him allowing Israel to have a king when it is not his best choice for them. Um, Bottom line on all that is I would just like to, by his spirit and by his wisdom, never be in the position Israel's in right here. I don't ever want to think that I know better than God. I don't ever want the pressure of life or other people's expectations or my own expectations to make me so sideways stupid that I would decide I know better than the God who made everything what's good for me. I don't ever want that to happen. That's what they did as a people, and uh, they paid the price for it. 
and they were warned over and over. And if you go back and read this, uh, back in the earlier chapters, the first time Samuel lays out to them, guys, it's going to be bad. God will give you a king if that's what you're going to demand of him. He's going to let you have that medicine if that's what you think you need. But it's going to go bad, and he spells out for him. It's going to be bad this way, and this way, and this way. And then in the day that you end up crying out to God because the very king you begged for is the, is the reason you're having problems, he's, he's, not, he's not going to do anything about it then. <laughs> so don't do this, guys, over and over again. Please don't do this. No, shut up, Samuel. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. Pitiful. And yet, to some degree, each of us should be able to see ourselves in that. <laughs> Uh, where time and again, we're offered God's best, but we make selections and choices um, based on our limited intellect and understanding on what we think would be better. Um, Guys, God can see a lot farther than we can, and He can see a lot deeper than we can, and He knows. And so if we trust Him, we'd do better. We'd avoid a lot of pain. We learn that from this story in a very vibrant way. So that's most of what we see happening in 12... And so, other than the fact that Saul is filling a kingship that is only being permitted because of the people's ignorance, Saul is doing pretty good so far, up until the beginning of chapter 13. He's well-liked by the people, he's won a military victory, things are pretty copacetic for him. Verse 13 is where, I'm sorry, chapter 13 is where things start to unravel a bit. And so, we're going to start in chapter 13, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 15, and uh, we're going to see what happens here, okay? Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon, When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come in the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept 
what the Lord commanded you. So Saul starts to feel the pressure. He starts to feel the pressure of all the eyes on him. His fighters are leaving. And instead of trusting God and being concerned with pleasing him, he makes a desperate attempt to please the people by disobeying God. God had told him specifically that the priest was to make the sacrifice, not the king, but pride was beginning to blind Saul. Now you, having read this with me, you might be feeling for Saul, right? Because you read verse, uh, verse 15, and that tells us that the 3,000 men he started with is now down to 600. People were, in, in, the, in, you know, in the seven days he waited, he keeps saying, hey, Samuel's going to show, guys, and he's gonna, he'll do the thing, and, and it's going to be cool. The Lord's going to be with us. We're going to crush these Philistines, and then we party. Well, you know, day one, they're like, okay, yeah, cool, we'll wait for Samuel. Day two, it's like, well, but where is he? Day three, it's like, I got other stuff to do. You know, this isn't working out the way you're saying. And so he's starting to feel the pressure of the people. He knows what God said, but he's also hearing the grumbling. He's also seeing his numbers dwindle. He's already outmatched. It was 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, right? Yes. He had 3,000 brothers to begin with. So they were not in good shape to start. And the numbers got a lot worse. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, this wasn't real cool. Um, You know, he's down to 600 people. He's going up a bunch against a much bigger force, and that might bring you to think, you know, why would God do that? Why would God allow Saul's force to be whittled down to 600 men when he's up against apparently at least 36,000? What, what, what is God doing? Why would, why would he allow that? Why would he let that seeming calamity come upon him? Why would he let him be in that pressurized situation of trying to figure out how to keep the last 600 from leaving, Right? Here's here's the answer why. Because of his great love for us, God will put us in situations that give us the opportunity to trust him. Because of his great love for us, God will put us in situations that gives us the opportunity to trust him. All throughout human history, God has been trying to give us the gift of true peace and assurance that comes in trusting him. Time and again, we have chosen to ignore his gracious offer and do things our own way. And I can just imagine the hurt in Father God's voice as he says to Saul and he says to us every time, have I not done enough to be trusted? Can you imagine God being the one in this situation? Can you imagine him looking down on Saul who who knows all the history of Israel? When Saul felt the pressure to doubt God, he should have remembered that God split a sea in half to deliver his forefathers from the Egyptians. And he should have remembered that God provided miraculous manna from his very own hand as provision for those very same people as they wandered in the wilderness. And he should have remembered the story of Gideon that was not so many generations past when 300 men took out a force that was described as so big, it was like the sand of the sea, and they had so many camels with them that they could not be counted. He should have have remembered. He should have fought back to all the times when God had proved himself faithful and trustworthy. And he could have stood in this time and not ended up becoming a man-pleaser and disobeying God to try to keep a few people with him. 
would have known that it was not based upon the might or the arms or the swords of men. But that God is going to finish what He starts every single time. If you'll trust Him. And if you'll stick with Him. We must also remember, or we will sin in this way. We will get impatient and we will try to hurry God along because we've decided that He's late. How many times have we decided that we knew better than God or that God was taking too long? We may never say these things out loud, but I would ask you, friends, what speaks louder than words? Actions. Every single time. And so maybe you've never been so bold as to shake your fist at God and and tell Him He's late. Or maybe you've never been so bold as to shake your fist at God and tell Him, I don't trust you to do what you've said. But you've perhaps screamed it with your actions. You've perhaps screamed those very same things by deciding not to wait and trust Him. But to put your own hands into the situation and try to form and mold something after your own image and your own likeness and your own desires. Instead of trusting that the God of goodness and faithfulness, the one who spoke and created everything, the one who has made us his object of affection, is going to be faithful to the promises that he's given you. Many times we've declared our distrust through our actions. Every time we are tempted to think or sin in this way, we too need to remember. We need to remember the Red Sea. We need to remember the manna in the wilderness. We need to remember Gideon and his 300 men. And for us in this time, to sin in this way is even more foolish than Saul. Because we have in our arsenal the testimony of all testimonies. We as the church redeemed by Christ can contemplate in these times of temptation, in these times where doubt tries to come in and cover up the light of God's goodness with the darkness of of hopelessness, we can contemplate the perfect life and the selfless death and the glorious resurrection of our Savior King. And if we can contemplate that, how is it that we can ever be drugged into a place of doubt that would cause us to declare with our actions that we do not trust a God so good as to give us that gospel? It should be impossible. And we need to learn from this this terrible example in Saul's life where he gave up. And, And one of the saddest things about it is the timing with which he gave up. I can imagine the Father with His head in His hands every time we sin against Him as a result of not trusting Him. And friends, let's be honest. Much of our sin is a result of not trusting Him. Think about it. Think about it. Think about how many of the times we deviate from His perfect and glorious will is because we've reached a point where we've decided we can't trust Him. And I can imagine him head in hands with a heavy heart saying to us, have I not done enough to be trusted? Have I not done enough to earn your trust? Have I not shown you my faithfulness enough? I can imagine the heart of God breaking every single time you and I decide. He is not worthy to be trusted. 
Most every time we choose to sin, we have to make that decision. Most every time we choose to sin, we're following the pattern of Saul. Deciding God has not shown up. God's not going to do what He said. i got to get in here and make something happen. And every single time, it leads to pain. Every single time we make that choice, it leads to heartache. For us and for our Father. When He asks us, have I not done enough to be trusted? The answer is he has. Even if we didn't have all the countless examples in our individual lives of God's merciful and sovereign intervention, just think about it, friends. Think about the last year. Think about the last decade. If you really think about it, how many times has God in his mercy sovereignly intervened on your behalf? And perhaps the problem is we need to get better at noticing. Maybe the problem is many times he is stepping in being faithful. Many, many times He is coming in and averting disaster for us. And perhaps we are so dull in our seeing and dull in our hearing and understanding when it is He's moving on our behalf that we go time and again without even expressing gratitude for that mercy expressed to us. So we need to pray for the help of God's Spirit to be discerning and understand and know. Right? And I don't really need some miraculous intervention from God to know that He's for me and that He's working on my behalf because I can stand here right now and I can breathe oxygen into my lungs and then let it out and just that I know I'm a recipient of the grace of God. To stand here before you alive, to stand here before you and have the light of the gospel shining in my heart and be able to to not be a slave to my own selfishness and sinful desires. I'm telling you right now, I know God's for me and He's done enough, more than enough, to be trusted. We have the gospel, friends. And if that is all that he had done, if that was all God was going to do, if all he was going to do was to send his son to live a perfect life, to to live a perfect life that we couldn't, and then die the death that we should have, and then rise from the grave triumphant over all of our enemies. If that was all he was going to do, and he was going to do no more, he has done immeasurably more than we need to trust him for eternity. But he didn't stop there, did he? He has then showered upon us the gracious promises that he will be with us, that he will never leave us, nor forsake us, that he will provide for us, that he will heal us and lead us and guide us. He has done way more than is needed for us to be a people that trust Him in absolutely every circumstance, no matter how difficult it looks. We should not put Him in a position to feel the pain of wondering why it is His children will not trust Him. He has earned it, has He not? He has. Without question, He has. I would call your attention to look at when Saul lost patience. Look at when Saul lost his patience and then look at when Samuel showed up. It says now he, I'm in verse 8 again of chapter 13. Now, when he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I have seen this tragedy over and over again where somebody trusts God right up to the edge of when they were about to see the breakthrough, the the thing that they were hoping for. 
and they give up in the last moment. I'm reminded of a woman that I know that trusted God and believed God for her marriage for over a decade. It was, there was abuse and there was alcoholism and there was struggles of many kinds. It was a very difficult, tense home situation with ebbs and flows of good times and bad times without Christ at the center as the anchor of what was going on. And this woman was torn apart by that, constantly bring, you know, nobody was perfect in the situation. She, she knew that she had her own actions that were contributing to the dysfunction, but her constant prayer to God was that her family could all together serve God. That was what she wanted more than anything. And she believed that, and, and she would cry out for that, and she begged God for that for over a decade. And then she got tired. And she got to the point where she gave up. She gave in to the tendencies that had driven her her whole life. And she ended up going and, and beginning to attach relationally and emotionally to another man, anticipating the fact that she was going to leave the one she'd been married to for over a decade. And in the midst of her being in that process, God woke up that husband she'd been married to in the middle of the night to hear him tell it, put, threw him to the ground, face to the ground, and made him sit there and showed him a vision of every single time his wife had prayed for that family. And made him watch. And he got up from the floor, and he walked downstairs, weeping, and kneeled down on his knees in front of her and repented. And said, please, I'm so sorry. God's shown me. I understand now. I know that I've not led this family, and I want to serve God. And I want to lead this family right. And she looked at him with a cold stare and said, it's too late. Just before the miracle she was hoping for, she gave up. Same thing Saul did. And it's tragic. And you need to understand, if you've been believing for something for a long time, and you're feeling the heat poured on, like, man, I've been believing for this a long time, and this has been hard, but I feel like... I feel like it's been multiplied the difficulty to stand in faith. Can I just ask you to think with me for a second? Could that not be your enemy? Trying, redoubling his effort to get you to break, sensing that perhaps your breakthrough's coming? I'm asking you, friends, don't give up. Trust God. Trust God all the way to death. We have no other option that makes sense. Don't ever give up. Trust Him. Don't be like Saul. Don't be like this woman that I knew. It's tragic. And I'm, I, that's one example of, of, of probably dozens that I could give you of times that I've known and I've watched somebody stand in faith and stand in faith and stand in faith and they get weary and get sidetracked and decide that they can't do it anymore. Give up. And they were right there. Don't do that. Don't ever give up. It's not an option. We're God's people. We're sustained by His Spirit. When does God get tired? Never. And if He's the one sustaining the fight within us, if He's the one providing the power by His Spirit to stand in faith and believe Him, which He is, then we need not falter. And we need not fail. We can stay faithful all the way to the end. And we can see His faithfulness be manifest for His glory and for our good. Amen. If God is orchestrating all things according to His sovereign will, which is what we see happening here, 
We see all of this is happening, but we also see that in the, in the background, God knows. We know that. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's outside of time. God knew when he picked Saul that Saul was going to end up messing up and that David was going to end up being the one that would take over. God knew all of this. So, so what is he doing? And if God is so sovereign, first of all, I think part of the answer to why would God do that? Why would God even go through the mess with Saul? Why wouldn't he just wait a bit and bring David in? Well, David didn't do a perfect job either. But the other thing is we have to understand that much of what is going on in the Scriptures and much of what is going on in our lives, overall we have to, see, we have to pull things back to a, to a, a higher viewpoint. We're not going to get to God's viewpoint, but if we can stretch with our imaginations and try to understand what He's doing, right? He's not just dealing with a guy looking for donkeys. and He's not just dealing with this one country fighting these other countries. What he's doing is he's weaving all together the totality of his purposes in all of the earth throughout all of history. He is bringing to fruition his plan of redemption. He has been about from the beginning, us and him forever. And he's working on that right here. And so when you're in the Old Testament and you're reading stuff and you're like, this does not make sense. Why would God even bother with that? To, to one degree, we just have to say, well, maybe I don't even understand how that works into the tapestry of his redemptive plan, but ultimately I know he's working on it. And when you're looking at stuff in your own life and you're like, I cannot even understand possibly what God could be doing in the midst of this, we have to settle down and we've got to understand, first of all, he sees things that we don't, and also that sometimes what's going on may not have so much to do with you. It might have to do with the fact that you're a part of something much bigger than just what you see and what you got going on in your little sphere. Right? And so that's what we're seeing here. God's teaching us something. He's, he's letting Israel to some degree go through this drama of their own ridiculous pattern of, okay, God, yeah, this is hard. We'll serve you. Yeah, we're bored with that. We want to do something else. Oh, now it hurts again, God. We're back. Part of what he's doing is, is he's teaching them their need for a Savior. And part of what he's doing is he knows that this is going to be part of our history that we're able to read back and understand something about ourselves. Because when I read this, I see myself in it. When I read Saul screwing up like this, I see my own tendency to do it. And it drives me to the feet of the Savior that I'm in desperate need for. The one that every one of us is in desperate need for. Much of what the Old Testament history is doing is declaring for us loudly our need for a Savior. Because God keeps saying, over how many chances did Israel get? Just trust me. I'm good and I'm powerful and I'll provide for you and I'll love you better than anybody else. Just serve me. Sounds like a good deal, God. Yes, we'll do that. Oh, it's two weeks. This got hard, right? How many times did they do that over and over and over again? And what do we learn from that drama? What do we learn from that pattern? We see that mankind isn't going to do it, that God had to figure out another way than for mankind to be able to keep their end of the bargain. So that's why he came and did what we couldn't do. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came and sent a perfect sinless lamb to come and live a perfect life and make a way so that by faith we could be joined to him in righteousness, that we could be redeemed. Because no matter how many times, no matter how many chances he gave us in and of ourselves, we were never going to be able to keep up the very simple end of the bargain, which is just love me back after you understand how much I've loved you. Without the help of the Holy Spirit provided to us because of the sacrifice of Christ, without him doing all the work, it wasn't going to get done. That's the gospel. He had to do it all. 
<laughs> and we wouldn't have done any better than them, guys. Okay? Teleport this little crew and, and take away the Holy Spirit from us and put us in these spots. We probably would have made Saul look good. Right? You mad, you mad that I said that? Or are you overconfident in you without Jesus doing a great job keeping up your end of a covenant? I'll just speak for me. I'd do a bad job. Right? Amen. Okay. Uh, so here's the question. If God is orchestrating all things according to His sovereign will, why do we have to do anything? Why does it matter what we do? You ever thought that before? It's a great question. Uh, I want to read you a quote from uh, Spurgeon on this. Suppose now it were known that the events of a certain battle would depend entirely on the skill of the general. The two armies are equally balanced and everything must depend on the tact of the commander. Would the soldiers therefore conclude that they needed not load or fire or draw a sword because everything depended on the commander? No. The commander works and his soldiers work together with him. So it is with us. Everything depends on God, but we are his instruments. Praise God. We've, uh, we've looked at kind of the beginning of where Saul comes on the scene, uh, starting at, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 9. We've come up to uh, chapter 13. We've seen where um, he begins to, pride begins to get the better of him and, and his, his reign begins to unravel. Now we're going to jump way to the end of his life. There's a bunch more in there. I would encourage you to get in there and look at it. But uh, we're going we're gonna to grab some principles now from the end of his life, the result of what we've seen so far. So go with me to 1 Samuel 31. And we're going to start in verse 1. Okay, That's all the way to the end of this book very last chapter, and I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to look at the end of Saul's life together. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and, f- and fell slain on Mount Geboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley with Those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Saul reigns 20 more years after Samuel prophesies against him in chapter 13, right? So he offers this illegitimate sacrifice. Samuel says, you messed up, bro, and it's going to go bad now. God would have established your kingdom, your dynasty. It's not going to go that way now. It's going to go bad. And uh, if you continue to read, you'll see that to to further degrees, um, 
that this 20 years, you would think at some point during that time, Saul would have repented. He had 20 more years of reign. There was several more times he could have, he could have turned from this foolish tendency to think that he knew better than God, but instead he continued to disobey God whenever he did indeed felt he knew better. Uh, over and over again, the same sin. And he ends up uh, a madman by the end of it, and he ends up uh, dying in battle, and he ends up strapped to a wall to be displayed so the Philistines could make sport of him. And unfortunately, he joins the ranks of so many that have started off well, but faltered by the end. Finishing well has a lot to do with long obedience in the same direction. It took Noah 75 years to build an ark in the desert. And I'm real thankful he did. You know, with the whole of all of humanity's continued existence riding on his obedience. I'm kind of glad he stuck that one out. What an assignment, huh? 75 years. Some of us have a hard time obeying God for 75 minutes. few people were willing to laugh. There was some seat shifting, right? Like, yeah, that is over an hour. That's tough. Many are quickly bored with doing what they perceive to be as the mundane assignment God has given them. I'm real glad that Noah didn't say bump it at year 73 because he was tired of building a big boat. Part of the problem for Saul was that he was not a man after God's own heart. Samuel tells him that specifically. And that he was going to be replaced by David who was. Sinless perfection, hear me friends, sinless perfection is not the criteria for being a man or woman after God's heart. Some of David's failings seem much worse than Saul's. But this is why we should not try to judge hearts from our limited perspective. Only God can see motivations. Sinless perfection is not the criteria for being a man or woman after God's own heart. The criteria is this. It is a love for God that is a genuine result of understanding how much He loves us. This causes us to repent of our sinful imperfection, trusting that part of His perfection is perfect justice and perfect mercy. When we understand how much He loves us, when we understand how good He's been to us, when we understand how much effort He has exerted in, in bringing together all that is necessary so that He could have us as a redeemed people, we, we get to the point where we trust Him. We trust His mercy and we trust His justice. And we love Him so much that we want to obey Him. The good news of the Gospel tells us how much we are loved by Jesus. And this softens our hearts so that we have the capacity to then love Him in return. Then we have the freedom to obey His commands because, because He loves us, not so that He will love us. And that changes everything. So many people. So many people. Guys, we, we, I know that one of the, the biggest dangers we have being a gospel-centered church that talks about the gospel all the time, one of the dangers is the same danger that anybody has that, that hears something a lot. And it's that it would become common to us. It's that it would become regular to us. It's that the message that, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that somehow we would get to the point where we could hear that and something wouldn't leap on the inside of us. That joy and love for that Christ... 
would not, would not swell within us, that gratitude would not flow from us to hear the very simple truth of the beautiful gospel. We cannot let the fact that we have heard it much make it for us a common thing. It must forever and always be the thing that drives us to do all that we do. It is the gospel that informs every ministry we do. It is the gospel that informs the way we structure our services. It is the gospel that informs the way we go and do our jobs and school and the way we deal with our families. The gospel, the fact that while we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus made a way that we could be alive again, that we were his enemies. And even in that state, he sacrificed himself so he could have us because his love for us was that great. That has to color and shade and change and motivate absolutely everything we think, do, and say. Are we going to do that perfect? No. But thank God that he allows us to repent when we don't. He brings us to this beautiful place to exercise the privilege of repentance. And I don't mean this place physically. I mean the place of his feet where we are offered the, the, the right to come boldly to his throne as sons and daughters because of the shed blood of Christ. We are brought to a place where we can offer up a sacrifice of repentance. Know that it's received, that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us. He's given us all the reason we need, friends, to trust him. He's given us all the reasons we need to serve him. And not as, not as slaves serve a taskmaster they fear, but as children would serve a father that they love. If you've not, if you've not ever come to the place of understanding to know that God loves you now, right where you're at, if you didn't know that, that God would receive you and accept you just like you are, if you, if you perhaps came today thinking that what God demands is that you get to a, a level of cleanliness that He finds acceptable and then you can come near to Him and then he can talk about whether or not you'll be in relationship. And maybe you've understood this false gospel that seems to permeate all of the fabric of this whole earth, this pervasive lie that somehow it's got to do with you being good enough for God to love you. Please understand, friends, the only way we have any idea what God thinks about anything are these scriptures right here. And these scriptures are absolutely crystal clear. There is no way to God aside from faith in the finished work of Christ. It will not come down when eternity happens, when you are at the feet of Christ, when judgment day comes, it will not be about what you did or didn't do. It will be about could you trust and could you believe in what Jesus did and said? Will you trust him? That's what this is going to come down to. And my, my plea to you today is to open up your heart to the possibility that this is not fanciful Disneyland trust. This is not just hopeful because somebody made a compelling argument, I'm asking you to look at history. I'm asking you to look at all that God has done and ask yourself this question, friend, has he not done enough to earn your trust? Is the cross not enough to earn your trust? Is the resurrection not enough to earn your trust? Is all that he's done and all that he's endured to have us not enough to earn your trust? Will you trust him? You're invited to do that today. We would ask that you do. Jesus is waiting for you. He loves you. He'll receive you right now. And I'm thankful that that's true. May we be a people who are patient in adversity, relying on God's sovereignty in every situation. May we be a people who trust God completely, knowing that He has done more than enough to earn it. 
And may we be a people who finish well. By God's grace, may we run all of the race set before us and finish strong for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for assembling the scriptures for our benefit. We thank you, God, that uh, as, we, as we look at the narrative and the history of the way you've dealt with your people, we can, see, we can see glimpses of what you're doing. I don't know all the reasons you did everything you did, but I can see the overarching effort that you are undertaking, that you are working towards this beautiful end result that has been your business from the beginning, and that is us and you together for eternity. That is what you're about. And God, I'm so glad that we are the object of your affection. I don't understand that because I know I am unwilling of that type of love. I am, I am undeserving of it. I, 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 there's nothing in me that, that, would, that would earn the kind of affection that you've shown in all that you've done to have us. But God, I am thankful that you did not base your affection for me on, on my perception of my worth, but that you have already determined by your sovereign design how it is you feel about us, how it is you think about us, and, and how much affection it is you're going to pour out on us. And I thank you, God, that these things are set by your mighty hand and not by my minuscule ability to understand. And so, God, I thank you for everything that we can learn from the life of Saul. God, I thank you that you put stories, uh, you put the history of what you've done with your people in, in the Scriptures so that we could learn from positive examples, and we can learn from people that have done things right, people that have walked mightily in faith, and people that have stood uh, in the midst of adversity and trusted you and seen your deliverance. But we can also learn from the examples of people that didn't. We can learn from the examples of people that got right up to the edge of seeing your faithfulness manifest and give up, and we can see the pain that that caused, and we can learn from that experience the same we can the positive ones. God, may we never be a people. I ask you to help every single person within the sound of my voice to be able to learn how to trust and rely on you, to tap into the strength that you provide so that they would never find themselves in a situation where they have trusted you by faith all the way up to the edge of you coming through for them, and then they give up, and they never see the glorious redemption that you've promised. Thank you, God, that you are a God that is faithful to every promise. I thank you that there is absolutely nothing you've ever said that you will do that will not come to pass. God, when it is difficult for us, when we are in the midst of adversity, when we're in the midst of that time frame, in between believing and seeing the manifestation of your faithfulness, God, I ask you to help us to be a people that are strong and bold and, and that we have a we have a galvanized spine that we will never give up. And it's not because we're strong enough, but it's because you have proven that you are. May we learn how to lean and rely on you. May we never be a people so foolish as to think we can rely on our own strength. God, each of us in our own way has tried that. Each of us in our own way, we have tried to do it ourselves. We have, we have, we have exhausted ourselves in the effort of trying to live a life without your kingship. But God, uh, for many of us, we have... We've done that. We've felt that pain. And now we find ourselves today endeavoring to be more and more each day dependent upon your sovereign grace and upon your power. Lord, I don't have what it takes to make it through this life. This life is difficult. There's so many things I don't understand. I do not have the strength in and of myself. 
to do what is necessary to traverse the difficulty of the landscape of this day. But I thank You, Lord God, that You are mighty and well able. That Your power is immeasurable. That You are able to do immeasurably more than we can even ask or think. I thank You, God, that our imagination cannot even begin to scratch the surface of what You are capable of. God, may we remember that in the midst of the struggle. And may we rejoice in it. I thank You, God, You are the source. I thank You, God, All hope and salvation is found in you. We give you all praise and honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch.org